Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38, as we continue to work our way through the book of Job, we're getting near the end of the book this morning in our text. Uh, this morning is Job chapter 38 through chapter 41. We'll cover four chapters, 38, 39, 40, and 41, which all constitute uh, God answering Job. Now, for the public reading of God's Word prior to the Scripture, I actually want to read a section in Job 39. Now, Job 38 is on page 443. Job 39, page 444 in the Red Bibles. And I want us to hear the reading of Job 39, verses 1 through 18, a section in which God is uh, noting His ability, His wise governance of these animals, which highlights the wisdom and the might and the power of God. And so if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word. Job chapter 39, verses 1 through 18. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the doves? Can you number the months that they fulfill, or do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because, of his, great, because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him? that he will return your grain or gather it to your threshing floor. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but, they, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, as we now look at your word, would you help us? Would you help us to see clearly the majesty, the greatness, the goodness, the wisdom of our God? Would you help us to be overwhelmed at who you are, who you have shown yourself to be to us in your word? And would you let that then form a foundation for us to walk in trust of our sovereign, almighty, all-wise, and good God? Would you do that for your people this morning, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
in C.S. Lewis's work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, young girl Lucy wanders into a world of talking animals. She soon finds out in that world that the king of the world, Aslan, who represents Christ in the story, is a lion. So Lucy is all happy to have a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, but thinking about meeting a lion terrifies her. And so in the conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, she says to them, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dreary, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mr. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I thought of that interaction in Lewis's book as I looked at these four chapters this week and began meditating on them. Job 38 through 41 represents God showing up and speaking to Job. For 37 chapters, it feels like Job has been demanding a hearing with God. He wants God to show up and he wants God to speak, God to break his silence and give some accounting for why things are happening in Job's life. And in chapter 38, in the midst of a whirlwind, God makes his presence known. God shows up and God begins speaking. And God speaks from chapter 38, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 41. And by the time God is through speaking, Job is humbled. In fact, in Job 42, Job's going to respond at the end of this, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. By the time that God is through speaking, obviously Job is overwhelmed and he realizes that the God of all creation is not one before whom we make demands. We don't demand that he shows up. We don't demand that he gives an account. Job is overwhelmed that God is the majestic and almighty and all-wise God. But I think there's something else that Job sees as well. Something that oftentimes in our reading of these last few chapters we can miss. What Job sees as well is not only the might and the majesty and the wisdom of God, but I think he's also overwhelmed at the goodness of God. And this is what I want to see, us to see this morning from these four chapters. And my prayer is that as we see it, we may find ourselves strengthened to trust the Lord as we walk through difficulties in our lives, as we face affliction and as we face suffering. This morning, I basically just want to note two things that God makes clear. He makes the first one clear in chapters 38 through 39, and the second one clear in chapters 40 and 41. The first thing that we see then in chapters 38 through 39 is this, God's power and wisdom in creating and governing all things. God's power and wisdom in creating and governing all things. 
Now, in order to understand God's response to Job, we have to understand Job's complaint toward God. Job has been complaining all this time that God has done a poor job of governing the universe. More specifically, Job's complaint is that God has done a poor job of governing his life. God has let things go awry, let things get out of control. Somehow, somehow he has not managed the world as he should, particularly with Job. Job's complaint is, I have done nothing so devious as to deserve the suffering that I have been facing. And so he's calling God to give an account, as if to say, acknowledge that you've messed up, acknowledge that you've done wrong, acknowledge that you've acted unjustly. And when God then shows up in the midst of this whirlwind in Job chapter 38, if you, if you trust that Job's accusations against him, you might think that God's going to show up in kind of a sheepish way, ready to apologize to Job, that he's kind of mangled things, that he's messed things up. But that is, if that's what you're anticipating, you're sorely disappointed because that's not what happens at all. Rather, God shows up and, and charges Job. We, we see in Job chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? God shows up to say to Job, Job, you've spoken, and what you've spoken is without knowledge. You're an ignorant man speaking about things that you're not aware of, something Job's going to himself knowledge later. And then in verse 3 of chapter 38, God says to Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Now, why would God say that? Dress for action, I'm about to ask you questions and you answer them. Well, because Job has been picturing this entire interaction he's having, this one-sided, according to Job, interaction he's having with God, he's pictured it the whole time as if they're in a courtroom, and Job is putting God on trial. Job, if you will, has been speaking as an expert witness. God, you've not managed the world justly. I know I'm telling you this. And so God now says, then fine. If you're supposed to be this expert witness, then I'm going to put you on the stand and I'm going to cross-examine you. Let's see how much of an expert you are. And then the Lord begins asking Job questions that exposes Job is by no means an expert. He does not know what creation looked like. He does not know how to govern the world. We see God starting this series of questions in verse 4. He says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God's questioning of Job is, where were you when I created the world? How did I do it? Surely you know. Surely you were there. When I created the world and all the angelic hosts sang for joy because it was done so beautifully and so perfectly. And obviously, Job is beginning to feel a bit foolish. Already, he knows his answer to all of these questions is, I don't know God. Only you know because I wasn't there and you were there. And yet, God doesn't slow down. In chapter 38, Starting in verse 16, God begins to speak of not only the creation of the world, but its vast expanse. He, he goes from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, asking questions first. In verse 16, he asks, 
Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Now, now when God begins asking Job about the sea, in some ways this might not translate as well for us as it would have for him. The sea in Job's days were something you couldn't explore. They didn't have submarines or apparatus like that that they could go to the, to the depths of the sea and see it. It was, it was an absolute mystery to them what was in the sea, and therefore the sea was terrifying. And God begins asking Job, what's in the depths of the sea? Surely you knew. Again, Job doesn't know. And then in verse 31 of chapter 8, then God takes him to the highest heavens. Chapter 38, verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Horizon? Uh, these are constellations. Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? If the constellations are dependent on Joe bringing them out every night, they would never show up. Clearly, God is overwhelming him with his greatness, and yet God doesn't stop there. After asking Job, surely you know how I created things, or, or surely you can, you can account for the vast expanse of the earth from the depths of the sea to the highest of heavens, then the Lord moves into weather. Now, weather at the time in an agrarian culture is one of those things that everyone is desperately dependent on. We can note farmers even today, they need rain, but not too much rain, and yet Job is questioned about this, about controlling the weather. Chapter 38, verses 34 and 35. God asks him, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? In other words, God saying to Job, I can do this. I can declare that the rain falls and the lightning goes forth. Can you do that? Again, the answer is no. And then finally... In chapter 39, a section we read some of it, God then moves to the world of the animals. Surely, Job, God is going to ask him, surely you know how I made these animals or fashioned them or how they work. And then chapter 39, as we've seen, he speaks of the mountain goats, of the wild ox, of the ostrich. I mean, you might think at this point, sure, Job has failed to be able to account for how the world's created. He's failed to account for the vastness of the earth. He doesn't know the highest of heavens. He doesn't know the depths of the sea. He can't control the weather. But maybe when you move to animals, maybe you can think, maybe Job has a shot here. I mean, if God were to kind of tip him off on his argument, now I'm going to talk about animals. Job might have stepped up confidently. You know, I've tamed a dog or two in my day. But then God brings up the mountain goats and the wild ox and the ostrich. These aren't the kinds of animals that man tames. And even in verse 19 of chapter 39, when he brings up the horse, God's question is, do you give the horse his might? Well, no. Or verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Or verse 27, chapter 39, is it at your command that the eagle mounts up? Again, the answer again and again and again, Job has to say, no, I don't know. Only you, O oh God, know, and only you, O oh God, do this. Consequently, then, that leads to chapter 40, verse 2, the conclusion of God's first speech, where he says to Job, 
shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty. He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job, if you're supposed to be an expert witness and yet you can't account for creation, you can't account for the highest heavens or the depths of the sea, you can't control the weather, you can't even account for the movement of the animals or how they work or how they have their strength, how in the world are you supposed to be able to question me? How can you make the accusation against me that I'm not governing the world and your life properly? And clearly, you are you and I am the Almighty God. And Job is at this moment humbled. And so we read in chapter 40, and the Lord said to Job, I'm sorry, chapter 40, verse 3, and then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will not proceed. Now, what then does God's answer to Job, the first part of a speech in chapters 38 and 39, tell us? What does it do? Well, one, it obviously puts Job in his place, doesn't it? Job is no expert on creation. He is not God. Now, I think, again, all of us know that. If we were to take a test and the question is, are you God? All of us would confidently answer no. But it does highlight then the absurdity, doesn't it, of us sometimes acting as if we are wiser than God. And we act wiser than God in our own minds when we dare ask God to give an account to us. When we say to God, you should not have done this. We are making a judgment that we know more about the governing of the world than he does. Anytime we pursue sin, we are saying, God, I'm wiser than you. You tell me X, Y, and Z is good for me and that I should not do A, B, and C, but I will pursue A, B, and C anyway because in my mind it seems that it is better. How absurd is that? That we would dare tell the creator and governor of every detail of the universe, I know better than you. But not only then does it put Job in his place, but doesn't it magnify the wisdom of God? I mean, if all of Job's answers are, no, I wasn't there, no, I didn't do it, no, I can't do that. It's done that way by God, asked that way by God, in order to highlight God was there. God is the creator. God is the one who designed the sea and the sky and who brings out the constellations and the one who controls the weather and the one who governs every animal on the face of the planet. It's to highlight the glory of God. I mean, simply think about what God does as he governs this world. We've only known the creation on this side of Genesis 3. So in other words, we only know the earth and the universe as a earth and universe that has been cursed because of Adam's sin. And yet, note the glory of God. Somehow, in His majesty, God can take water from the seas and the rivers and elevate it into the sky and carry it to lands that need water 
and cause it to fall on them in the form of rain. Somehow, God makes the sun rise every morning and set every evening in a display of his majestic glory in an array of beauty. Somehow, every night, he brings out the stars in such a way that they are predictable. Even last night, without knowing that, that I was covering this text at all, in detail, uh, Lily and I were with my youngest walking into the house when all of a sudden he stopped and said, look. And we look up at the sky and he says, that is Orion's belt. He's right. Why was that there? Not because I thought to myself, I'm going to preach this text that mentions Orion. I, I think I might share that Orion's belt is very clear tonight. I have no control over it. God does. And he governs the details of the sky exactly as he sees fit. Now, if indeed, then, God is the one who creates and governs this world in such wisdom and in such might, doesn't it make sense that we would trust him as he governs the details of our lives? So first, it, it puts us in a place where not only we are humble before God, but we're driven, we're reminded why we must trust God. Isn't this Jesus' point when he points us to the flowers of the field? and the birds of the sky? If God governs them in the sense of meeting all of their needs, why don't you trust Him to take care of you? In other words, Jesus says, look at creation, know that God does that, and then trust Him. So this is why Job is first humbled, because we see God's power and wisdom in creating and governing all things. But this is not, as Job answers here in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, this does not then end God's speech. God picks up again. He calls Job again in verse 7 of chapter 40. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. He says to Job again, will you even put me in the wrong? Verse 8, will you condemn me that, I, that you may be in the right? This is what Elihu had said to Job. You tried to justify yourself rather than God. God's now saying, I'm going to call you on it. And in chapters 40 and 41, we see another point God makes, specifically Number two, we see God's plan to put an end to suffering, Satan, sin, and death. God's plan to put an end to suffering, Satan, sin, and death. Interestingly, as God begins to question Job in chapter 40, his questions are different than the kinds of questions he asks him in chapters 38 and 39. In 38 and 39, he asks him questions to show that Job doesn't have might or wisdom in creating or governing the universe. But when he begins to ask him questions in verse chapter 40, he asks Job if he is capable of bringing judgment upon evil. Is God capable of, Job rather, capable of carrying out the kind of judgment that God is going to carry out against all the wickedness of the world? So we read, for example, in chapter 40, verse 9, have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Can, can, you, can you come and power Job and bring judgment? Now he's going to say to him, because if you can, get ready for it. Dress for it, array yourself in such majesty that you're going to come and judge every evil in the world. Verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger 
And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Again, surely, Job, you can do this. Surely you can tread all the wickedness down. Surely you can judge every prideful person. Adorn yourself with majesty and get ready to show your anger. And again, Job cannot do so. And the Lord notes in verse 14... That if Job can do this, chapter 40, verse 14, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. You see, one thing that we often miss is the connection between judgment and salvation. Why would God ask Job, can you bring judgment and bring down the proud and tread the wicked and demonstrate your anger? It's because God's plan is to save His people. And the way that God saves His people is by destroying every evil and wickedness that stands against them. We see this from the very beginning. You remember when, the, when Adam and Eve sin, as Satan comes to them in the form of a serpent in the garden, God's first promise of salvation comes with a threat of judgment. He says to the serpent, the offspring of the woman, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. God's first promise of salvation is a promise, I'm going to judge your enemy. And this continues to be pictured throughout all the entire Old Testament. When God brings Israel out of Egypt, He does it by destroying their enemies, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. When David, as a, as a picture of, of Christ in this moment, delivers Israel from the giant Goliath who is against them. He does it by slinging a rock into his forehead, and then when a Goliath falls to the ground, he takes his sword and cuts off his head. Why such a violent image? Because God is showing, I'm going to save my people. Or think of the end of the book of Revelation. Before that great scene when God gathers the bride to himself and everything is made perfect, it's preceded with the judgment of the harlot, the judgment of the false prophet, the judgment of the beast, the judgment of Satan himself. Why? Because God is saying to his people, I will save you. And my salvation will involve the judgment of my enemies and your enemies. And that's what God is asking Job here. Are you capable of bringing salvation the world? Are you capable of doing everything necessary to carry out my work of redemption? Are you capable of judging my enemies? If you can, then I'll acknowledge you can save yourself. That's what verse 14 is saying. I'll acknowledge that your right hand can save you, but it can't, can it? But I can. I will bring judgment. This is what God is showing. The reason God asks the questions about creating the world and governing the world is to show Job's inability and the fact that God has the ability and does these things. The reason he's asking Job here now, can you bring judgment, is to show Job's inability and to show God's purpose of actually bringing judgment on his enemy. And the way he shows this then, the way he illustrates it, is by speaking of two animals. Two animals that have provoked a lot of questions from those who've studied the book of Job. The first animal he mentions is in verse 15, where he says, behold, behemoth. Now, behemoth is a weird name here. We don't know of an animal that we call behemoth. We know of these other animals, the donkey, the ostrich, the horse. 
behemoth, what makes it even more interesting is in Hebrew, this word is plural, as if you might think of a number of animals, a number of giant land animals or something of the like, but it's clearly singular, speaking of one creature here. And so, one of the reasons that you might take a plural noun and speak of it in a singular focus is to speak of the noun's majesty or greatness. This is why one commentator said behemoth here, however you translate it, could be understood as some kind of super beast, this, this super animal, this super creature in the world. Now, what's interesting is what's said of him is pretty impressive. In verse 15, we're told that he eats grass like an ox. Now, the reason most likely that the Lord's referencing ox here is because the appetite of an ox is insatiable. They just keep eating and eating and eating. And here, God is saying, this creature, behemoth I'm speaking about, he eats grass like an ox. He, verse 16, has strength in his loins, power in the muscles of his belly. Verse 18, his bones are like tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He'll later speak of him dwelling on the land, and yet the river is no threat to him at all. He can just run right through it. Some have therefore said, this may be a hippo. A hippopotamus. They eat grass, they are on land, they run through, they're pretty impressive. I don't know if you would describe their limbs as, as iron or the like. But the problem with that is actually verse 17. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. I don't know how many of you have seen a hippo, but their tails don't remind you of a cedar tree. It's just this little thing, right? It's not that impressive. And so, um, verse 17 calls us some problems there. You could say the description sounds more like some kind of dinosaur or the like, right? But I think God's point here is not necessarily that we would understand the precise creature he's describing, but that we would understand that it represents evil. It represents his enemy, one who's going to be destroyed. Why do I say that? Because look at verse 19. He is the first of the works of God. Now, when he says first there, he means that like Colossians speaks of the firstborn, that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He doesn't mean that, that Christ was the first thing created. The Son of God was not created. He means he is the preeminent one. Well, that's what he's meaning here when he says he's the first of the works of God. This, this beast is the greatest of the creatures, the greatest of the beasts that roam the land. And yet, look at how verse 19 concludes. He's the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Now, if it's a hippo, the question is, why does God hate the hippo so much? Why, why is he going, let him who created him bring forth his sword? Look out, hippo, right? No, I don't think that's his point. His point is this great and majestic and terrifying creature, God can slay. And that becomes even more clear when you get to chapter 41. In chapter 41, you have another creature mentioned, one who is called Leviathan. Chapter 41, verse 1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook and press down his tongue with a cord? God asks Job. Now, this Leviathan, we 
read this to open the service, he's described as a beast who can be, cannot be tamed, cannot be killed, who has sharp teeth, who have shields of plates on his back that can't be pierced, who has folds of flesh that are as hard as stone. Now again, if you read some commentaries, some will suggest that it sounds like a crocodile. Sharp teeth, plates on his back, folds of flesh that are pretty hard. Maybe. Here's the problem. Chapter 41, verse 18. 4118, his sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Now, I'm going to admit, I've not seen many crocodiles in my day. But I've never seen a fire-breathing crocodile. But that's what's being described here. Again, the point isn't, I don't think, that God is describing a creature that we could say, yeah, God can also kill a crocodile. His point here is to describe a creature that is so great and so majestic. And then proclaim that this creature can be slayed by God. Now, it's kind of odd, chapter 41, God speaks of the fact that, again, by asking Job, for example, as he does in verse 8 of chapter 41, lay your hands on him, remember the battle, you will not do it again. This is the same kind of questioning God did in 38 and 39 when he says, did you create the world? When, when Job says no, the implication is God can and did. The same thing here in 41 verse 8, when God says, lay your hand on him, remember the battle, you'll not do it again. In other words, you can't conquer him, but God's point is, but I can. Now, now you may ask this question. If Job 41 then is about God's ability to conquer Leviathan, again, this creature that represents evil, maybe Satan himself, then why does God spend all the way from chapter 41 verse 12 through chapter 41, verse 34, 12 through 34, the last words he brings up in his speech are praising the greatness and the impressiveness of this creature, Leviathan. I mean, if Leviathan is the enemy of God that God is going to kill, then why end your speech talking about how impressive he is? And that's what he does. Look at the end of chapter 41, verses 33 and 34. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride, as if he represents all the wicked. He is high over all of them. Why would God end his speech praising the impressiveness of this creature? Years ago, I remember one Wednesday night, Sunday night, I can't remember which one, and as I was growing up in church, some, it was one service a year on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, again, I can't remember which one, we had a service where we had a hymn request night. We would gather together at the church and there would be somebody on the piano and someone behind ready to lead music and each of us would proclaim a hymn. Somebody would just raise their hand, I want to sing, you know, whatever, Victory in Jesus. And we would sing one verse of that hymn. Somebody else would raise their hand, request another hymn, we would sing one verse of that. I remember... On this particular night, 
someone raised his or her hand and requested, A mighty fortress is our God. The hymn we began the service singing. And so we sang one verse of it. And at the end of it, I thought, that was weird. And the reason I thought it was weird is because you may have forgotten. It's a few songs ago this morning. Here's how the end of, verse, of, of the first verse of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Here's how the end of the first verse goes. It's describing the devil. It says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. I remember as we got through singing that first verse, ending with those words, I thought to myself, did we just sing a song about the devil? <laughs> like, I mean, if there were Satanists in the service, they'd been like, we got to pick that up. That's good, right? That's a really good praise of the devil. Why does Luther write a song where he ends verse 1 talking about how impressive the devil is? We know the answer, don't we? Because it makes verses 2 and 3 really impressive when God says, and I will stop him with a word. That's exactly what I think is going on in chapter 41. The reason God describes the great, majestic might and impressiveness of his enemy, Leviathan, is because it makes it stand out just how impressive God is. And that's what he does in chapter 41, verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. That is Leviathan. Don't you dare stir up this creature, God says. You'll regret it. But then he ends verse 10. Who then is he who can stand before me? In other words, if I've made a creature that is so impressive that you dare not even stir him up because you can't contain him. He's my creature. And I'm the creator. How dare anyone think that he can stand before me? Now, now why is it? Why is it that God speaks in, in chapter 40 and chapter 41 about, about being able to slay, to bring the sword to behemoth, to stand in battle and take down Leviathan? Why is God saying this? What is God saying to Job? Well, I think what he's saying to Job is the same thing that he says to his people in Isaiah 27. In Isaiah 27, God is telling His people that one day He's going to bring about a glorious work of redemption, where He's going to make the entire earth new. The, the curse that we know on the world is going to be lifted, the way He pictures it in Isaiah 27, is that Jerusalem is going to become so fruitful that not only is Jerusalem blessed, but Jerusalem blossoms and the whole earth is filled with fruit. The whole earth is made new. But the first thing God says in Isaiah 27, right before he announces that glorious work of new creation, listen to what he says in Isaiah 27.1. In that day, that day of new creation, that day of bringing his redemption to its fullest expression, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. 
the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. What God is saying to his people in Isaiah 27 is, I know that you live in a world where evil and wickedness and suffering and sin and Satan and death are all around you, but I want you to know they will not have the last word. I am going to come and I'm going to put an end to Leviathan and everything he represents. And he is saying to his people, not only will I judge every wickedness, but I will save you. When God speaks to Job in chapters 40 and 41, I think he's saying to him the same thing. Job, look around at these two creatures that are so impressive, creatures that I'm using to represent everything wicked in this world. He's saying to him, Job, I'm going to bring my sword and I will slay them. I will go to battle with them and I will succeed. And I think Job gets what God is saying. Because unlike in chapter 40, when Job just says, I'm putting my hand over my I'm not saying anything more. Job says in 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And if your plan is to put an end to suffering and Satan and sin and death, God, you're going to do it. Now, the key here for us is to understand then that God isn't simply saying to Job in 38, 39, 40, and 41, I'm the creator and I'm the ruler and therefore you should trust me as the mighty and wise God. He is saying that. That's what he says in 38 and 39. But in chapters 40 and 41, God is also saying to Job, I am the good God will put an end to every evil in the world. In other words, he is saying to Job, Job, this suffering in your life, the sin that you have even wrestled with in your own soul, Satan, your great enemy, who, 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 who under my allowance has attacked you vehemently, and death, this great evil that has snatched away your children and which you have even longed for in your lowest moments, they will not have the last word. I am coming to deal with them. And what this means for us then, as we read these final chapters, is it's a reminder to you and me, as we go through our sufferings, we need to stop and remember the creator and ruler of all things who is infinitely wise and infinitely mighty, he should and must be trusted. And, it's saying to us, the God who loves us so dearly that he will not let your suffering, your sin, your enemy, or even death itself have the last word. The God who is good, he must be trusted. As Lewis makes clear to Lucy in that book, he is no tame lion, but he is good. And the reason we know that evil, wickedness, suffering, sin, Satan, and death will not have the last word is because 
it did not have the last word with our Savior. When God sent Jesus Christ into the world, His Son took on flesh so that He might plunge into the depths of every evil. We were under the dominion of sin and under the dominion of death, and He is born into the world and lives a perfectly holy life. And yet bears the punishment that our sins deserved, and he plunged into the depths of death. As Carrie read earlier, he, through death, destroyed the one who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Death in its penalty has been satisfied because Jesus died, and he was dead, and he was buried. And on that Saturday, there was no life in him. The reason darkness covered the land is because darkness was a picture of the judgment of God. And the judgment of God for the sins of his people was being exhausted. That cup that Jesus asked his father, if there be any other way except I drink it, let it be passed from me. He drank it down the wrath of, the, of his father in every drop. Divine wrath was satisfied. Jesus was dead. But that was not the last word. On Sunday morning, as air began to fill his lungs again, and his heart began beating, and blood began coursing through his veins, and he woke up, and that stone was rolled away, and he walked out of that tomb alive, it sent a loud and clear message. Suffering and Satan and sin and death are not the last word. And one day, he's coming back to put an end to all of these things, but he wants us to know we can trust his goodness. Now, what I can't say to you is that whatever you're going through today, in your lifetime, it's going to be remedied. I can't assure you your suffering will go away. The, the, the threat of death will, will evade you. The way that the enemy has tormented you, he will relent from that. Or, or that in your fight with sin, you'll never feel that temptation again. I can't tell you all of those things, that, that they will be remedied in this life. But I can promise you, one day when Christ splits the sky, they will be remedied. And this is what God tells us in Job 40 and 41. And therefore, this morning, I think our appropriate response is to say, we as His people will trust as we walk through whatever in this life, our mighty and our wise and our good God. And this morning, we're going to come to the table as a way of publicly proclaiming that indeed we trust the one who loved us enough to send his son to live and die and be raised. If you're a believer this morning, you professed your faith in Christ, we want to invite you to come to the table. The way we're going to come is each row will dismiss the first row, followed by the second, followed by the third, to come around from the outside. You'll come around to the table. They have a pastor here holding out the trays. We have two cups stacked together. The top one has juice, the bottom one has bread. You'll take one stack of two cups Return to your seat from the inside to the inside, and then wait, and we'll eat together, and then we'll drink together. If you're to my left in the overflow section, there'll be a pastor there waiting for you. You'll do the same thing. As we come to the table, as we take the elements, 
we'll sing together. We'll sing together of that great day when we are finally with him, when sin and Satan and death are finally done, and we will praise him and sing of his love forever. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. When he comes to save his people, he will also be coming to judge his enemies. And if you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you're clearly standing in the place of his enemy. And you will not be able to stand before him. But the good news is he's made a way for you to be reconciled, to lay down your arms, to bow your knee to him. Jesus Christ lived and died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead on the third day so that if we turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins and given eternal life. You can do that right now where you are. If you'd like to talk to me or somebody else after the service, we would love to talk to you. But I want to plead with you to come to Christ this morning. Now let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table this morning.